as we get into God's word now, we have a lot of ground to cover and a lot of work to do. So let's get right down to business, shall we? I would invite you to grab your Bible and turn it to John chapter 8, verse 31. John 8, 31. Whatever kind of Bible you got counts, that works. And while you're finding that in your Bible, I would remind you that uh, we are just recently getting back into our series going through this whole Gospel of John in its entirety, verse by verse. We're in it for a good long time. Thank you for journeying with us in that. And it's been awesome so far. And last week when we picked back up, we read a monstrous, massive, earth-shattering, sledgehammer impact claim by Jesus. If you remember, Jesus said last week, I am the light of the world. Somebody say the light of the world. world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Huge claim. And we saw in response to that, that most of the people in hearing that didn't like it. And they rebelled and they revolted and they argued and they resisted against Jesus. But what we read at the very tail end last week, John 8.30, it says that many who heard it, responded in belief exactly and so that's where we're picking up the narrative today it's part of the same conversation this text we're going to read today and jesus is going to start out with another large charged earth-shattering impact kind of a claim he has a lot of those if you haven't really read much of him before he makes many so let's begin with the first couple verses john 8 31 and 32 jesus said to the jews who had believed him If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That sounds pretty cool, and it is pretty cool. Let's read that again. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So when we start out on that, It says, if you abide, somebody say abide. Abide. The word abide, someone said it with an Aussie accent. That was cool. The word abide means to remain in something. You camp out in something. You stay there. You dwell with. You do life with. That's that word abide. And Jesus says, if you abide, stay, remain in my word. Now, we could take that to mean like the whole counsel of his word, the whole Bible, And that wouldn't be inaccurate, right? As Christians, that should be our thing. We're using all of this word to uh, be built up and to enrich our lives and to get to know Jesus better. So that's not inaccurate. But what he's specifically getting at here, the word he's talking about, is the word, the invitation that he made in the text we read last week. When he said, like we already talked about, if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. If we abide in that word of Jesus, when we make it our business to follow him and go after him and walk with him, he says, you will know the truth. Will you say, what truth is that? And ultimately, to sum it up, it's the truth about who Jesus is, who therefore we are, and what life is ultimately all about. That is the truth he's talking about. Not just like a little truth, amen? It's a big truth he's talking about. 
What he's saying is, if you really abide in Jesus, if you really pursue the Lord Jesus and make him a priority in your life and make it your business to walk with him and live a life that's honoring to him in relationship with him, what you're going to realize is that he is he is God. Let's just start with that. He is God. He is the God who made you. He is the God who loves you. He is the God that has a plan for your life. He is the God who has saved you from your sin if you're a believer. He has covered over all your unrighteousness and all your iniquity. He has given you life. He has brought you from the darkness to light. He is the one who walks with you all the way through this crazy thing called life. He is the one who gives you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He is the one who gives us promises that can't be broken. He is the one who gives us a hope that doesn't fade. That is all the stuff you start to realize when you really hang out with Jesus. Somebody give me an amen up in the house today. So what we could sum all of that up to say ultimately is this. Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure in the world. Find me a better treasure than all that that we described just now. Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure in the world. It's no surprise then that he comes along a few chapters from now, John 14, 6, and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. But we're talking about truth. I am the truth. It's all about Jesus. You need to understand that today. So he says, if you abide in my word, my invitation... You will know the truth. The truth is that I am the greatest treasure in the world. And he says that truth will set you free. So we are talking about freedom today. Somebody say freedom. Freedom Freedom is one of those things that everybody wants. But yet it can be sort of hard to land on a common definition of it. I'm just thinking right now, this is a related sidebar. Literally, do you know what the license plates in New Hampshire say on them? Live free or die. In other words, if I can't have freedom, I might as well not even live. Okay, it's that big of a deal. We're talking about freedom. And I looked up, as is my custom, a definition on the dictionary of the word freedom, which I'm going to write down for you here so we can reference it. The word freedom, according to somebody on Google... No judging my handwriting, by the way. We've got you, like, security is all over. They'll throw you out of here. Freedom is the ability to act without constraint. This is fun for you guys, eh? To fulfill one's purpose. Don't ask me why I didn't write this ahead of time. I wanted to do this with you. Do you like my S? That's really good. Looks like an eight. It is cool. Okay, so according to Google, freedom is the ability to act without constraint in order to fulfill one's purposes. In other words, it's the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want it and nobody can tell you no. That's what the internet says. And that sounds pretty good in a way, right? But to be honest, that's kind of a lousy definition of freedom. Probably for many reasons. One of them is because this is kind of subjective, right? This might not mean the same thing for everybody. I'll give you an example. When COVID first began and everything was shut down, everybody had to work from home. Do you remember that? Some of you are still working from home. And uh, when that happened, we had people in two opposing camps when that happened. Some people over here said, oh my word, working from home, best thing that ever happened to me. 
I don't like to get up early to drive to work. I hate my commute. I hate spending the gas money. My office smells bad. I'm not really fond of my coworkers. I'm like loving being at home. I haven't got out of my sweatpants in three weeks, right? I'm testing somebody. That's their testimony up in here. Just saying. I'm free. That was like a freedom sentence right there, working from home. But at the very same time, the very same circumstance, some people said, oh my word, working from home, this is a prison sentence. They said, I haven't left the house in three weeks. My clothes are stuck to me and I'm stuck to my chair and my kids are driving me nuts because we haven't had any kind of space for three weeks or a month and I'm in my pajama pants still and I need to get some fresh air and get out of here. It was like a prison sentence. It was not freedom. Some people thought it was freedom. Some people didn't. That's what a subjective definition of freedom will get you just like that. So we need some kind of a standard when we're talking about freedom, right? Can't just be what you think. Because what if my purpose does you harm? What if it oppresses you? What if it enslaves you in some way? Well, then it's not really freedom. So we need, we need to kind of level the playing field here. We need a standard by which to measure this. So what I would suggest to you is you appeal to the highest court that there is, and that's God. What does God say about freedom? I don't really care what Google says, to be honest. I want to know what God says. Because he is the creator. He put all this deal together. He knows how it works. He's smarter than we are, okay? Let that sink in and minister to you this morning. We need to know what he says. And if we want to know what God says about freedom, we need to understand a little bit about him and about how he designed the world and life to work in the first place. As we've discussed before, you... You, each one of us, you were made by God and for God. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, you were made by God and for God. Go ahead. Yep. Did all I heard. All right. You were made by God and for God. In other words, you are not at the center. It's not all about you. It's about God. Your life is about God in some way. And you were made, part of your design and purpose and function is that you were made to be in relationship with God and be close to God, right? It's not that he's this distant figure over there that has nothing to do with me. No, we were supposed to be close to him. All through the Bible, you hear the ripple, the echo of God saying, I will be their people and, no, not that. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what I get for not writing it down. That is our place of flourishing, when you are close to God. That is how it was meant to be right from the beginning. Now, of course, we have all sinned, right? We have separated ourselves from God by our sin. Sin drives a wedge in between us and God. And because of that sin that's there, that rebellion, that iniquity, those shortcomings, we can't just waltz in over to God. How you doing, right? There's a dividing line, a dividing wall of hostility between us and God. So something needs to be done about that or else we're not able to live the purpose we were meant to live, which is to be close to him. You know where I'm going next. God loves you. God loves you so much that he gave his one and only son to deal with your sin problem. How many of you know Jesus Christ, the son of God, came to the earth and he died in your place to pay for your sins? Show of hands today. That's what Jesus did. He bore all of our iniquity, took all of our shame, 
on the cross, paid for, dealt with. It is finished, period, exclamation mark. Jesus was buried in the ground. He rose from the grave on the third day. So not only did he just die for your sins, he overcame it all. He is greater. He is victorious. He has risen. He has ascended into heaven. He's doing just great right now. And what he's doing is he's inviting us, each one of us, to respond to his invitation, to believe who he is, to accept what he's done for you, to surrender your life to him, and when you repent of your sins. And when you do that, you are saved. Somebody say saved. saved. Saved with gusto. Yes, you literally are taken from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Your sins, your record of wrong is no longer counted against you. You are forgiven and set free. We're talking about freedom. You are given a new life and you are brought into the family of God, into relationship with God, close to God. That's where you were supposed to be all along, right? Excuse me. So, through Jesus, we get to come back into that purpose of our lives and we get to put him first and come under his authority. He is not just your savior. He's calling you to make him the Lord of your life, the king of your life. We don't like to hear that one quite as much usually. And when we do that and when we're in relationship with God, it's so we can fulfill his purposes, not our own. It's not about you, amen? Not about you. So true freedom then, according to God, if we sum all of that up, true freedom, you know what we're going to do? This is going to be fun. I'm just thinking of this right now. You ready? I'm really going to enjoy this, probably more than any of you. That's no good, right? Get out of here. Clean up on aisle one. True freedom then, according to God, if I could sum that up, let's just write a real big and bold because we're going to talk about this a whole bunch today. Freedom is just what we read up there. Abiding. Somebody say abiding. abiding. Repeat after me. In. I've got to go way down low here. Jesus. Jesus. The. Greatest, say that again, greatest, greatest treasure. Say treasure. True freedom, according to God, is abiding in relationship with Jesus, who is the greatest treasure in the world. Somebody say amen to that. That's what freedom is. And now some people say, no, I disagree because you talked about coming under Jesus' authority. And if it's coming under his authority, that means I'm sort of enslaving myself to him and I'm not able to fulfill my terrible Google definition of freedom on my own purposes. So I reject that. I rebel against that. I refuse that. And a lot of people do that. They say, I'm not going to follow anybody's rules. Right? God can't really be offering me freedom if he's got a bunch of rules for me to follow. Here's the deal about God. Yes, there are rules. Yes, there is authority that you come under in Christ. But you need to understand these rules are not a burden. These rules are not to your detriment. Right? The Lord's rules, the Lord's laws are for our good. I'll give you an example when I was a little kid, I was three years old, my parents moved into the house that they are still living in, and they are the first house on this street, and the subdivision goes this way. And when we moved there, it was this very quiet street, a couple dozen houses on it, all kinds of kids my age and my brother's age 
really, really good. And they gave us quite a bit of freedom from a pretty young age. They said, you guys, when you go outside, they were probably eager to get us outside, get out of here. You can go out the driveway and go this way. And you can go wherever you want over this way. There's yards to play in, other kids' houses you can go play at. There's acres of woods over this way. Just tell us where you're going and go have fun and come back for supper, basically was the rules. They said, but here's what we don't want you to do. When you go out the driveway, don't go this way. Because out here, though this street was really quiet, this road here is a main road. A lot of cars driving on there and they fly down the hill. I've never done that, but other people fly down the hill like this. And they said, we don't want you to go out the driveway and go left. Really, there was nothing for us out there anyway. There were no other kids, no other houses. It was just danger. There was nothing to do. But go do all this. Now, in that moment, I could have had a, a, cho a choice to make. I could have said, well, you lousy parents, you authoritative, authoritative whatever, dictators, whatever, you won't let me live my truth and express myself and be autonomous and let me go this way. What a burden you've given me, right? I could obsess and fuss over the one thing they asked me not to do, or I could choose to focus on all of this, all of the blessing, all of the freedom, all of the good things. And, and we did. We had fun down in there. It was, by the way, my parents were smarter than, than I was, probably still am. And so there was a reason for them giving that rule, right? It's because they loved me. It's because they cared about me. It's because they knew better than me. And so my response, at least most of the time, was, okay, I think I should trust that and I'll do what they say. It's the very same thing with God. When you think about the laws and the rules of God, don't fuss over, oh, he won't let me go outside that fence there, that guardrail there. No, God's pasture that he invites you into it truly is freedom. It's got pretty wide fences, right? Yes, there are boundaries and borders we're not supposed to cross because when we go that way, it's for our harm. But God says, look at all of this that I've given to you. There's so much life in here. There's so much blessing and goodness and good things in here. Focus on that and be grateful for that. It's a matter of your perspective and if you're willing to humble yourself in there. So Jesus' desire for you straight up today, church, is for you to have freedom, freedom in him as you abide in him, the greatest treasure. That's what he wants for you. And the cool thing with that is when we put Jesus first, when we do treasure him, he allows us to enjoy all the other things that are on the inside of the fence of his pasture. Things like family, friends, possessions, experiences, vacations, Toronto Maple Leafs games, whatever. All of that is inside the pasture. And when you put Jesus first and get those priorities right, what does that word say? That's freedom. So with that, let me sum up. Jesus wants you to be free. And freedom is abiding in Jesus, the greatest treasure in the world. Here's what I would ask you, not for an out loud answer today, just silent reflection. Are you living in freedom in your life? Are you walking in freedom? When you look at your life, does a word that you would use to describe your life sound like the word freedom? Some of you, probably yes. Some of you, maybe in some areas. Some of you, I'm guessing, would probably say no. I don't really feel like I'm very free right now. And very simply, if that's you, you don't have that freedom right now. It's because you're missing one of these ingredients we already talked about. Either you haven't believed 
or you're not abiding, or you're not pursuing, you're not treasuring, you're not living in the truth, whatever it is, it's all right there. I don't know, I read that, and that's a promise that Jesus is making, and I think we would do well to take him at his word, amen? So that's freedom, that's the first couple verses there. Don't worry, we have like 28 more. What I want to do with the rest of our text, we're going to kind of pick through it quickly. I want to talk about six traps that we can fall into that rob us of our freedom, okay? So we've seen, this is what Jesus wants for you. This is what Jesus is inviting you to, but there are traps along the way that we can fall into that steal our freedom from us. The first one, you can see it on the screen there. The first trap is that your faith is superficial, Superficial meaning just surface level. It's not very deep. It's kind of head level only. If you look at verse 31 in our text, the very first verse, it says that Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. I found that very, I never noticed that until this week when I was prepping for this. Jesus isn't having this conversation with people that flat out disagree with him and hate him and this and that. He's talking to the people who just before this believed what he said. They heard his invitation and they had some sort of a sympathetic response to what he said, a positive response. Yet, what you're going to see super quickly, these are the people, the ones who had believed him, they're the people that are going to immediately start arguing with him. So what does that tell us? It tells us that they may be believed at a head level only. They believed up here somewhere, but that belief never sunk in here. It never changed their heart. It never changed their life any. And that kind of belief, I'll tell you straight up, it doesn't accomplish very much. It's not good for much. I reference this verse a lot. We did last week even. Even the demons believe in Jesus. Even the demons. And they're not going to end up so well. So we want to do better than that. Even the demons believe. It's not just about believing at your head level. But if you loosely just hold on to this loose identification with Jesus, you say, I go to church, I'm a moral person, I pray once in a while, Thanksgiving dinner, whatever. Like, that's fine. That's like maybe a start, but that's not enough. If that's describing you and it's only head level and you're not abiding in him and treasuring him, I'm just telling you the math equation, that means you're not free. You might feel, I don't know, sort of free in your life, but you don't have the freedom that Jesus is talking about. I don't say that to anyone's condemnation. I'm just saying that's the way it is. I'm not a math guy, but that's what it adds up to. Your good deeds, if that's you, you just believe loosely in your head. Your good deeds, your morality, your spirituality, whatever it is, you've got that misappropriated because it, all of those things, right, the good things you do say, those are supposed to come from a place of doing this. Because you love Jesus, you do things that are honoring to him, helpful to others, right? You don't do that as the sum total of your faith. It's got to start with that. And I regret to say, like, there's a lot of people today, and I've been this guy before. There's a lot of people, even people that are sitting in churches, that have this, just a superficial faith. Yep, Jesus up here, Jesus on Sunday, cool, but it doesn't go much beyond that. And it misses the entire point. That is the point right there. That is the invitation. So if you just have a superficial faith, that's a trap that's robbing you of the freedom that Jesus is offering to you. All right, next one then. You're in denial. Number two, you're in denial. I was going to get you to turn to your neighbor and tell them that, but I thought that might be rude, so go ahead and don't. 
You're in denial. Verse 33, so Jesus makes the invitation, I got freedom for you, and they, they answer him. They sound kind of confused. They say, wait a minute, we're offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? In other words, I don't need to be set free. I'm already free. This is the crowd that say, I'm doing fine. I don't need God in my life. I'm self-made, self-built, self-righteous. What do I need God for? I'm doing just fine on my own. Here's what I would say to you. Just because you think or feel sometimes like you're free doesn't actually mean guaranteed that you have this. I'll give you an example. So a few weeks ago, a few of us went out to my parents' house on a Sunday afternoon for supper. And it was before the cold weather started rolling around. It was a beautiful day out. We were out sitting on the deck. And we brought our dog with us, Marley. And uh, she's a great dog. Something she doesn't do super well with, though, are other dogs. Not great. Not great. She likes people, not other dogs. And my parents' next-door neighbors, just over here, there's not like a fence or trees or anything in between. It's just their yard into the next yard. And they've got two dogs themselves. They're beautiful dogs, friendly dogs. They don't bother a soul. Those guys have one of those underground electric fences. The dogs never come over. I've never seen them in my parents' yard one time. But I don't trust our dog, okay, with that. And they have a habit of they just kind of bound out the back door and run to beat the band out into the backyard. And I said, oh, if Marley sees them, she's going to flip out and she's going to take off before we can catch her. So we put her on a lead rope, like a, let's say 20 feet. I don't know how long it is, let's say 20 feet. And we tied one end around a deck post and then clipped the other one on her collar. And th she had a fairly good amount of freedom with that. It wasn't like a leash that's this long, and as soon as she tries to move, she's pulling on it. She could go all around there. She could come up on the deck where all the people were. That's where she wanted to be. So she went for like an hour, let's say. Rope wasn't bothering her at all. But then the dogs next door came out. Yeah, you can see where this is going. They fly out into the yard, and Marley sees them and immediately gets up and starts running. And uh, I could see it happening, but I couldn't stop it. It happens. She can, like, fly. She, she moves. And she's running full speed this way. And I said, oh, dear. She doesn't remember that she's on the rope. And I said, this is not going to end well. The deck post is either going to snap off or she's going to snap off. I don't know what's going to happen. And she ran, and she got to the end of her rope, and it literally, it just, poof, it pulled tight, and she flipped over like this and let out a yelp. It was actually not real fun to watch. It was kind of scary. So we ran over. She was fine. But the point was this. She wasn't as free as she thought she was, right? Even though she felt pretty free, she was having a pretty good deal. Didn't mean she was truly free. She didn't try that again, by the way. We made sure that didn't happen again. So just because you think you're free in your life doesn't automatically mean you are. Maybe you're going through a period right now where the wind is in your sails and things seem good, but that doesn't, that's not the same thing as this. And until you come to grips with the fact that, hey, you're a sinner, you are not right with God in and of yourself, you need to be saved, you need to surrender your life to Jesus, you need to be made new and born again and start walking with him. And right now, if you don't do that, you're on a path right now apart from God and you're headed toward eternal condemnation and damnation. Wanted to say that in church, thank you. Right? Until you come to grips with that, I don't care what you have, you don't have this. You're in denial. Still with me? Okay, number three, 
trap that robs you of freedom. You are in ongoing sin. Again, don't tell that to your neighbor. You don't know if that's true. Jesus comes along in verse 34. He answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, that's the key word, practices sin, is a slave to sin. So, of course, any sin as a Christian, any sin is detrimental for us. I'm not suggesting, oh, it's only the like ongoing ones you got to watch out for. The rest of them are fine. God doesn't care. No, any sin is bad. Any sin robs us to some degree of this in Christ. And certainly, if you don't know Jesus and you're relying on your own stock and your own righteousness to be right before him, even one sin in your life is enough to disqualify you. You're not righteous enough. You have sin in your life, okay? What this is especially getting at, though, is those who make a practice of sin. Someone say practice. When you make a practice of sin, you're just locked into something in your life that's ongoing sin, it's habitual, it's unrepentant. Whether it's secret or not, you don't have freedom. And just shooting you straight here, like anyone that is here that has ever been in what you might consider uh, an ongoing sin, I've been that guy before. Anyone who's been in that kind of place will tell you that's not a place of freedom. No freedom there, not at all. And what this is saying is if you're in a pattern of ongoing sin, you're in darkness. That's what it says in the uh, book of 1 John chapter 1. It says anyone who goes on sinning does not walk in the light, but the darkness does not have the truth in them. Anyone who goes on sinning and I'm not coming along here and saying, oh, that means you're unsaved. Da, da, da. It's not really the point today. Maybe, maybe not. But the point is this. If you're in ongoing sin, you don't have this right here. Jesus actually uses the word slave in there. That word slave comes from the Greek word doulos. Somebody say doulos. There's your Greek lesson for the day. The word doulos means bond servant. That's not a term we use a lot, but a bond servant is someone that worked for an employer or a master, oftentimes to pay off some kind of a debt. A lot of times they would live in the master's house and work for the master, but they were not part of the master's family. Okay, They were hanging around there, but not part of the family. And what this is getting at is that there are people who will claim the name of God or say the name of Jesus or hang around in the house of the Lord, but they don't really belong to the family of God. That's evidenced by their ongoing sin. And what he says in verse 35 is that the slave does not remain in the house forever. So that's a bit of a warning for us there. If you're in ongoing sin, again, I'm not even trying to get into the saved or unsaved question, but he's saying if you are going on in ongoing sin, it's gonna catch up to you someday. It's not gonna end well for you. Don't pull the wool over your eyes and say, ah, no, I'm fine in this. Right, that's what we do. We make excuses. I can quit whenever I want. This isn't that bad. I got a handle on this. this I'm not hurting anybody else. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, I'm not, God doesn't really care. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right? I don't think so. It's not gonna end well for us, okay? And I say that as a warning, not a condemnation, and I say this to you for your encouragement. If you're in that kind of place in your life, in your walk today, you've got some ongoing sin. It's just repetitive, continued. There is hope for you. There is grace for you. You can change. That habit can break because 
I believe in Jesus, and I really believe in this thing called freedom that he's offering, right? You don't have to stay in that state that you're at. But it kind of has to do a little bit with how you handle your sin, right? Especially your ongoing sin. If you say, meh, eh, and you just continue in it, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna happen for you. But conversely, if you humble yourself or you take to Jesus, look what he says right here in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Not just a little free, you're gonna be really free when you take your sin to Jesus, when you trust your sin with Jesus. Don't just go on trying to manage the symptoms yourself. You gotta start with him. That's how you break ongoing sin. It's by the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. Anybody testify to that today? But as long as we just have this eh, attitude about sin, our ongoing sin, you will not ever have this. You will not ever have the freedom that Jesus is offering to you. I'm just telling you. I'm just doing the math. Number four, let's roll on. The fourth trap that can rob you of true freedom is that you're self-righteous. Self-righteous. Definitely don't tell your neighbor that one. Okay, I'm done. That's enough. Self-righteousness, if you're unfamiliar with that term, is the certainty that you are totally correct and morally superior. Somebody says, that does sound like me. Oh, you'll like this part then. It's the certainty that you are totally correct and morally superior. And that can be expressed in like big existential things or even down to the little things. No, you're not cooking that hot dog right. Here's how you cook a hot dog. I'm smarter than you. Let me cook next time, okay? Self-righteous. These guys in here, their language is totally dripping of self-righteousness. Watch their language. Jesus says, uh, you got to be set free. And they say in verse, we're going to skip to verse 39. They answer him, well, Abraham is our father. You can almost see them puffing their chest out. Abraham is our father. We don't need you, Jesus, because Abraham's our father. Now, Abraham was a very significant figure in the Old Testament. He actually is the one through whom the entire nation of Israel was descended. Just a multitude. It all originated from him. And the problem that a lot of the Israelites had is that they would hang all of their hopes, all of their righteousness on Abraham. In other words, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to try. I'm just continually, by default, no matter what, I'm good because I'm in the family line of Abraham. That's their logic right here. It's smug. We're good because of our background and our upbringing and our tradition. There, I don't need you, Jesus. Here's the problem. Just because you come from a certain background or a certain tradition doesn't mean you have this. It doesn't mean that at all. Jesus, Jesus comes along and says, still in verse 39, oh, Abraham, you want to talk about him? He says, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. See what he does there? He doesn't like, stomp on Abraham. He doesn't say your tradition and your background is worthless. Sometimes our, our origins and our background, maybe your church background, those can be things that help you do this. But he says, if you were actually Abraham's children, you would do the works Abraham did. Jesus commends Abraham, but guess what the whole deal with Abraham was? Guess what his claim to fame was? Essentially, he did this. Genesis 15, 6 is the big verse on Abraham. Abraham, it says, believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. 
He had faith. He treasured the Lord. He did this. That's why Abraham is worth paying attention to and following. So Jesus is saying, don't just say, I belong to Abraham. He says, be more like Abraham who did this, right? But he goes on to say, you'd be doing the works Abraham did, but you're not. Now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did, he says, And they don't have it. Watch what they say back in verse 42, or still in verse 41, sorry. We were not born of sexual immorality. That is a jab. That is a dig at Jesus. They're insinuating something pretty negative about him. It actually isn't even true, but if you rewind in your mind to the Christmas story, You know how this works. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Mary was engaged to be wed to Joseph, but before they were married, she became pregnant. So where does everybody's mind go with that? Oh, okay. Somebody couldn't wait, right? Right? They found each other. They did whatever. They hooked up. They whatever they did. And now she's pregnant. That's sexually immoral. That's That's what they're insinuating happened. That's just a jab at Jesus. And not only do they just jab at Jesus, they use that untrue insult so that they can stand on him and step on him so they can build themselves up. Not We weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. See them puffing themselves up? We're good. We have this father, God. And before we judge them too harshly, it's really easy for us to do the same thing to puff ourselves up. You say, hey, I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. Wink, wink. I'm moral. I work hard. I serve in the church. I give to the church. Whatever it is. And you puff yourself up. Here's the problem with that language, friends. If that's your heart and your attitude, that's all about you and what you do. When in reality, the freedom that Jesus offers is all about him and what he's done. It's not about you. I say it again. As long as you're self-righteous, as long as your game is to build and puff yourself up and say, I'm free, I'm good on my own, you're never going to taste the freedom that Jesus wants to give you. It ain't about you at all. You actually need to humble yourself to have this, not exalt yourself. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, the word says. You need to renounce yourself. You need to die to yourself. You cannot, you cannot have freedom in Jesus and be puffed up. You cannot be full of the Spirit and full of yourself. I think we get this one. Are we good on that one? Okay, two of you are good. The rest of you can stay later and we'll keep talking about this. You two can go. No, just kidding. Okay, we got to roll on. Number five, trap that robs us of the freedom that God wants to give us. It's that you're hostile against Jesus. Somebody say hostile. Hostile. This is going to dovetail right into what we talked about last week. Remember we said last week, as long as we're resisting Jesus and going against Jesus, we're in the darkness. We're not in freedom. So what I want to do, I want to just fly through a bunch of verses here and just notice the hostility against Jesus in here. If we go back to verse 37, he says, I know you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. 
right? Violence, that's hostility, because my word finds no place in you. I, have, I speak of what I have seen with my father, but you don't want to hear it, right? You do what you have heard from your father. I'm over here, and you're over here, Jesus says. You go on to verse 42, Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Ouch. They're so secure in their self-righteousness. We know God. He says, if you really knew God, you would love me. But you hate me. You can't stand to hear my word. See the hostility there. Just the, the total being against him that's there. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. But why do you not understand what I say? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. They just won't listen. They won't receive what he's saying. Yes, you can do that in your life too, just saying. Listen to what Jesus says. You are of your father, the devil. Ow. Some people just sidebar have this idea of Jesus. Oh, he was a peace guru and he just went around with a flowing robe and he said nice things. You are of your father, the devil, he says. Ouch. But it's so true. It's so true. He says, your will is to do your father's desires. Just so you can see the separation and the hostility here. He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And again, he's saying, you're acting like him, not like me. That's a problem. That's not the path to freedom. But because, verse 45, I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Verse 47, he says, whoever is of God, hears the words of God. But the reason you do not hear them, you can't receive them, you can't live by them, is because you're not of God. Hostility, division, separation there. They're just against him. And they go on to say in verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Like, where have you been hanging around? What magazine are you reading? By the way, the Samaritan thing, insult, just insulting to him. The Samaritans were a group of people hated by the Jewish people. They considered them to be like a half-breed, cast-off group of people. So when they call him a Samaritan, that's like they're going right to the bottom of the barrel trying to chuck grenades at him right? They're just so against him. They're just spewing insults at him. And you have a demon. Jesus goes on to say, I do not have a demon. Thank you very much. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Division, hostility, separation, not this. Yet I seek to do, or I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. In other words, friends, if your business is just being hostile against Jesus, you're, you're um, against him, angry at him, hostile in any way toward him, he's saying, that's going to catch up to you one day. There's judgment for that. It's not going to end well for you. Truly, truly, though, look at this, verse 51. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I won't linger on this, but just saying the week that we had as a church, I find that verse very encouraging. Whoever keeps my word will not taste death. Yeah, your, your mortal body might die, but you're not even gonna taste death. You're not even gonna get a, a lick of it. 
Is that good news for somebody today? That's the outcome of our abiding. We had an amen from a young person back there. All right, start them early. The Jews said to him, they still don't get it. They say to him, verse 52, now we know you have a demon. Now we know you're crazy, Jesus. You've just spelled it out. Because Abraham, here they are back on Abraham. He died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Okay, that's like a lot of verses right there. But the whole thing just reeks of hostility. They are so against him. They are not buying anything that he's selling. And I'll just say it very simply for this. That means they don't have one whiff of freedom like God is inviting them to have. You cannot abide and resist Jesus at the same time. You can't be hostile against Jesus and be treasuring him at the same time. Does not work. And so again, in our lives, where are you hostile? Where am I hostile against God? Where am I not believing? Where are you not trusting? What is God asking you to do that you are not doing? He's inviting you, equipping you to do, and you're just digging in your heels. Where are you dishonoring him? Where are you not listening to him? If that is you, and that's all of us in some capacity at some point in our walk, that is not the path to freedom at all. It's not about being hostile against Jesus, but abiding in him because he's the greatest treasure in the world. And with that, let's go to the final one. Number six, trap that can rob you of your freedom is this. You, friend, have the wrong priorities. You say, how dare you? If this is what freedom is, very simply, this is what freedom is. When you treasure something else above Jesus, you've got your priorities mixed up, and therefore, the outcome is not freedom. Just doing the math. I'm just spelling it out for you. It's right there. Verse 53, the Jews say to Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Right, Abraham is top of the heap right here for these guys. Are you saying you're greater than Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? In our lives... It's easy to do what they're doing. They're looking to someone in Abraham who was important. We talked about that. The prophets in the Old Testament, they were important. But guess what? Neither of them are the most important. Neither. And in our lives, we can do the same thing. We can take important things, valuable things, your job, your money, your family, your friends, your hobbies, your interests. All of those are good, important things but we can bump them up ahead of Jesus in order of importance. And when we do that, we don't have this. Very simple. Verse 54, Jesus answered them, hey, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing, but it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. It's a claim to be God right there, just saying. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Right? You can see how he's positioning himself here. And look what they say to him. No, no, he goes on, verse 56, excuse me. Your father Abraham that you're so pumped up about, he 
rejoiced that he would see my day. He rejoiced that he would see me. He saw it and it was glad. Abraham, this monstrous, significant figure, he looked ahead to the coming of Jesus. The whole Bible points to Jesus. All of your life is about Jesus. The goal for these guys is not to uphold Abraham at all costs, but to treasure Jesus at all costs. That's our goal too. And they argue, shockingly. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Abraham lived hundreds and hundreds of years before this. And Jesus said to him, this is one of my all-time favorite verses in the whole Bible, John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, before Abraham even had a breath in this world, before he was even a thought, I am. That is not a grammatical error or a misprint. That is a claim to be God. We said last week when, when Jesus says, I am, I am is a self-expression of God all the way back from the beginning. And when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he is putting out in plain English exactly who the treasure is supposed to be. It is him. And in classic fashion, they still don't get it. Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They missed it altogether. They could not get on to this. Let's wrap this up. Don't answer out loud, but again, I will ask you, are you living in freedom? Are you in your life, your day-to-day, -day, are you abiding in Jesus Christ? Are you in relationship with him? Are you treasuring him as the greatest treasure in the world? If so, if not, very simple, very simple. Are you walking in freedom or are you caught in a trap today? Maybe you're caught in the trap where you've got a superficial, shallow, head-level belief only. Maybe you're caught in the trap. You're in denial. I don't need to be set free. I'm doing great. Maybe you're in ongoing sin this morning. Maybe you're puffed up in self-righteousness this morning. Maybe in some area of your life you're hostile against God and his purposes. Maybe you've got your priorities mixed up in your life. Whatever it is, all of those things will rob you of the freedom that Jesus wants to give you. So the answer today, friends, is this. You surrender yet again. Here's the invitation Jesus has made. You know what he wants for you. He loves you. He cares for you. He's got grace for you. It's time to surrender to him. It's time to get with him and be real before him. Drag your sorry self to his feet, if that's what it takes. And if there's sin in your life, repent of that. If there's stuff going on in your life, ask him for strength in that. Humble yourself before him. Draw near to him. The Bible says draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. That's a promise. It's a promise. Jesus is inviting you to a life of freedom. The ball is now in your court.